couple things I want to share before we get into God's Word together. Uh, you'll notice in your bulletin that next Sunday night, we are having a, an all-church gathering, all the campuses coming together. Uh, we're going to do this at the Crown Point campus. And, you know, part of our desire, and we've worked, we've tried so hard to find a place that we could have all of our campuses together that would work. Um, uh, on a Sunday morning, and we just can't figure it out. It's a large church. It takes a lot of people, logistics. We've looked at venues. We can't figure out where to do it. But we can do a Sunday night. And so we're going to do this Sunday night, 6 o'clock, and uh, all the campuses and all the campus pastors are going to be there, and, and uh, we're going to have worship, and we're going to have a little bit of preaching and some sharing about what's going on and some light refreshments, so some fellowship time. It's going to be very, very nice. So if you're able to come, we would love it, okay? We would love it next Sunday at, uh, at, at 6 o'clock. I also want to say a word about Pastor Dexter, uh, because he's not here and I can talk behind his back. <laughs> but uh, just so profoundly thankful for God's work in Dexter and through Dexter, okay? So please encourage him and encourage Paige. I mean, if Jennifer was able to come up here, she would say, uh, you know, how important it is for the, the pastor's wife to be encouraged because when, uh, you know, mama's not happy, nobody happy. So please keep Paige encouraged and their whole family, lift them up in prayer. And, uh, and so that's great. Also, I want to mention about More and Better. You know, More and Better is this, uh, this uh, what you want to call it, the, the, these initiatives that we've engaged in and we've been raising funds for and uh, we've got different things going on. One of them was improvements to this campus, which uh, included a new roof and a new parking lot. And uh, you'll, you might be privileged to know that you're the only campus that's got everything already. <laughs> we put a new roof on, and if you haven't seen yet, we got a beautiful new paved parking lot out back here. And so uh, we're thankful for that, especially on a Sunday when uh, people from out of town are hogging all the spots on the front of the, of the building. We'll be nice to them, say that's fine. Uh, but uh, anyway, so we're glad to have that done, and uh, we've got things going on at the Crown Point campus, auditorium expansion there. We're particularly excited that it would seem, and I don't want to be pre premature here because there's a few things that are yet to, we, we need God to work in a couple little things, but it's very likely that our Mandarin-speaking Chinese campus initiative is going to begin in the first quarter of next year. Uh, so that would be super exciting. And uh, as Bethel continues to, you know, evolve uh, more multi-campus, more multiply, more multi-racial to, uh, to include now this whole new sort of dimension, an Asian influence in our church body, what a wonderful sort of diversity that's going to create. And we get to sort of flex towards them and understand how they look at things and to contextualize the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Chinese community of Northwest Indiana. All right. Well, with that said, I want to get into God's word. Just pray with me a moment. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would help us to understand. We pray that you would help us not just to mentally understand or intellectually understand, but that we would be spiritually understanding and transforming, that our lives might be conformed to your will and your word, and bring glory to Jesus, as indeed he is, the beautiful one, the beautiful name that is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, I do pray just because this uh, 
statewide event is happening across the street in a few hours. We pray for that event, and we pray for uh, our, our state and our country, and uh, this week of elections, we pray, God, that as you've told us to, we pray for our leaders. We pray that you would give them great wisdom. We pray that you would allow them to lead in such a way that we might, in peace, fulfill the callings that you have upon us as we live in the kingdom of man, but we serve the kingdom of God. And may Jesus Christ be honored and praised this week. We pray in his name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, as you know, we're studying the book of Romans. And uh, you are doing that here also at the Gary campus. And uh, we are learning so many things. And I'm, I'm hearing so many wonderful things about how God is working through uh, the, uh, the this t- this teaching series in the, uh, the book of Romans. And what we have, been, uh, we have been seeing now in chapter 6 is how the grace of God changes our relationship to sin. That prior to coming to faith in Christ, we were, we were alive to sin and dead to God. And therefore, sin reigned in our life. Sin was the master of our life. Everything we did was eventually somehow oriented towards Sin, not the will of God, but the will of Satan, the will of self, the will of pride, the will of sin. But by the grace of God and through the gospel, we have been made now alive to God and dead to sin. That now sin no longer is our master. Sin no longer is the Darth Lord of our life. Sin is no longer the thing that dominates our life. No, we have been freed from the penalty of sin by the grace of God. We have been freed from the penalty of sin by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because when he died for our sin, we died to our sin. We died to sin as that master and Lord of our life. No, now there's a new Lord on the throne of our life, and his name is what? Jesus Christ has been enthroned upon our hearts. And now he is ruling and reigning, and we are submitting our lives to him. That all that we are, and all that we think, and all that we do might be pleasing to him. And honoring to him, not honoring to sin or Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil, none of these things. And that's why it says in verse 11 of chapter 6, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christian, if you're a Christian here today, you are dead to sin. This is not something that we accomplish this is what jesus did when he died on the cross for our sin and now he says consider yourselves reckon yourselves think about yourselves think about your life as being actually now under the grace of god and alive to god not to sin anymore but you can kind of imagine the roman church hearing this and being like that sounds great but how do we do that exactly like what does that look like and that's where paul now sensing the need to explain this And to get practical, he writes now in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. May God bless the reading of his word. 
So for five chapters now, Paul has been explaining how God goes about turning sinners to saints. How God turns people who are under the law and under the wrath of God to now being under the grace of God. And what we've seen as we've been studying this is this wonderful miracle where God declares us righteous by faith in Jesus. Justification. And promises to treat us as righteous as Jesus forever. That in his eyes we are forever righteous. The miracle of justification. And then we've seen how God does this by uniting us with the work of Jesus on the cross. This wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. Where when he, Jesus died, we died with him. When Jesus was dead in the grave, we were dead in the grave with him. When Jesus stepped out of that grave, we stepped out with him. Not that we literally did that because we didn't even exist yet. But in the eyes and the mind of God, the eternal God, he united us with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so now in union with Christ and in union with his victory over sin, we now have the opportunity to walk in newness of life. We are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. So the Apostle Paul now, as he writes this, moves from what we might call teaching to preaching. Now I was asked one time, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And I said, volume. <laughs> volume. Or another way to say it is that, you know, teaching is explaining what is. Preaching is now explaining what this should mean in our lives. The application to the practicalities of how I live my life in the day-to-day -day life. And that's what he does now is he moves to more of a kind of preaching as he now applies what it means that we are dead to sin and alive to God. Now here's my summary of what Paul's going to say, and I want to quote a famous theologian, a guy by the name of John Owen. And John Owen was an Englishman. Uh, he was friends with Oliver Cromwell, who was the prime minister of England. And if you know the story of, uh, you know, the, the time of when England was the world power, when England was the Rome of its day, that there was these sort of uh, waves of up and down between the Protestants and the Catholics, and, you know, this was in, this guy was out, Bloody Mary and all that. Well, there in the midst of all of that drama is John Owen, a theologian, but a man who was very acquainted with real life. He and his, his uh, wife had 15 children, 14 of them died in infancy. Imagine that. So this is a man that knew life and knew pain and knew sorrows, but he knew Jesus and he thought about these things in a deep way. And his teaching on sin and temptation is uh, a classic, is the classic teaching on it in the history of the church other than Paul here in Romans. And one of the things that he said about sin that summarizes what uh, I'm going to talk with you about today is one of his most famous sayings. And there are, there, are, there are like Christian coffee houses and bookstores that you can go to and you can buy t-shirts that say this on it. And you can buy, uh, you know, uh, coffee mugs that say this. And I guarantee there's a lot of, you know, sort of people out there, they got this tattooed on them somewhere in their body. It's just like one of those famous things that Owen said. Here it is. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will will be killing you. Now that's John Owen summarizing what the Apostle Paul now is saying in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Now you might be confused in looking at that because you think to yourself, hey, wait a second, 
Here we've been singing all these songs about victory and these songs about eternal life and we've been hearing these messages about how we're dead to sin and alive to God. I'm a little confused, Pastor Steve, because if I'm dead to sin, why do I got to be killing sin? If I'm dead to sin, why do I have to kill sin? And the answer to that is that we are dead to sin, but sin is not dead to us. Just because we've declared victory over sin doesn't mean that sin has said, okay, the battle's done. And that is why we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us because sin is desiring to kill you every day. Sin wants to destroy the good work of God in your life. Sin wants to destroy the new testimony that your new life in Christ is creating. That you have, this is most of what I want to say this morning, is that every single one of us have an enemy within us that is actively working and pursuing to destroy everything good that God is doing in our life. And we have to go into the day every day with an understanding that I'm going into a day of battle today. I'm going into war today. There is an enemy. But notice that the enemy is within us. Here's the fancy word for it. It's known as indwelling sin. Indwelling sin. That even as a Christian who is alive to God and dead to sin, I still, even after conversion, I still have within me indwelling sin. The Bible calls this the old man, the sin nature. This this inclination towards delighting in sinful things that I will have until the day I die and I shed this body of sin. Maybe I could use uh, uh, war as a little helpful illustration. And if you know me, some of you know that I, I'm a sort of a, uh, a, lay, a, a layman. I'm not a, a professor of this, but I have spent many, 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 many days, hours uh, studying um, war, especially World War II. Uh, I know a lot about World War II, and I still enjoy watching videos about World War II and learning about it. Uh, and one of the things, if you know about World War II, is that, so MacArthur signs the, you know, signs the surrender there in the bay in Tokyo. They sailed the USS Missouri right up the bay, and, you know, show of power, they signed it, all of that. Well, even after that was signed, for years afterwards, they were finding Japanese soldiers on remote islands in the Pacific that hadn't heard that there had been any surrender. And so they would come on the beach, and here's you know, a Japanese guy with a machine gun ready to shoot anybody because he didn't hear that the war was over. So the war was over, but he was still fighting the war. Or you think about the Iraqi war. Victory was declared, right? Baghdad had fallen. But somebody didn't tell the Taliban about it. And we got people in our church who were in Iraq for a long time after victory had been declared and they were shot at and they were bombed and they had, you know, these devices going off around them as they're driving down the road. Why? Well, Taliban hadn't given up. They were fighting a guerrilla warfare. And I wonder if you look at your life, if you're a Christian here today, if you look at your life and you realize there is a guerrilla ISIS Taliban 
fighter that lies within every single one of us. It is the remnant of what sin brought into our life. And it is in there, and it is waging a war. And it's not passive. It's not just sort of there, and if I feed it, it comes alive. It is alive. And it is working against us every single day. And so I'm trying to convince you that when you step out the door, actually when you open your eyes in the morning, you're at war. You're at war. So sin is like that fighter within us. And this explains why Paul's exhortation in verse 12 is this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's what it's aiming for. Do not present your members, that's code for body parts, do not present your body to sin as an instrument for unrighteousness. Okay? So therefore, he says, because you are dead to sin and alive to God positionally, make it your priority not to let sin take over your life again. That's why he says here, mortal body in verse 12, or members in verse 13. Okay? What is he talking about? He's talking about our bodies. Okay? Talking about our bodies. And why does he talk about our body? Because our bodies are the context within which all of the sins that we've ever committed, we have committed in our bodies. I mean, have any of you ever spent a day outside your body? Actually, don't answer that. I know a few of you. No. Every sin we've ever committed, we've always committed with this body. This body has been where I've done it. And because our bodies are the context within which we live our lives, the framework, the space within we, which we live our lives, we have to recognize that our enemy is trying very hard to use weaknesses associated with our bodies in order to lead us back towards a life of sin, to be dominated by sin. So sin is seeking entry points. This is like... Uh, the Velociraptor in Jurassic Park looking for weak spots in the fence comes to my mind as an example of that. And they're like, ooh, he's smart. That Velociraptor is so smart, probing, looking for any little defense. Sin is like that. And most often the places that are weak with all of us have to do with the frailty of being human. And we live in these bodies that have all kinds of needs and frailties and sin sees these as places to take advantage. In what way? Let me give you two examples of how sin does this. Sin, our enemy sin, loves to turn a need into an obsession. A need into an obsession. Now, we're humans. We all have needs. What are some of our needs? We need food, <laughs> money. <laughs> all right. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, clothes. Yeah, some things to that, but those are the basic needs that we have, right? Okay, now, there's nothing wrong with any of those needs. Those are all things that God made us to need. They're all things associated with being human. But what sin loves to do is to take a need that seems legitimate to us, that I naturally have, and to turn it into 
an obsession. To elevate it higher than it ought to be. In fact, you think of the first temptation. What was it? In a sense, food, right? Satan comes to, uh, to Eve there in the, in the garden and, and says, hey, look at this tree. Look at its fruit. Wouldn't that be awesome? And we know there were theological things going on there uh, deeper than that. But I think even of the, the temptation that Satan had with Jesus in the wilderness. He didn't come to Jesus on day one. He came to Jesus on day what? 40. When he hadn't eaten and he hadn't drank for 40 days, I would say at that point, you're probably ready to see food as a necessity. 40 days. And then he comes and he says, hey, look at this stone. Why don't you make it bread? I mean, come on, that's a legitimate need. You're hungry. What could possibly be wrong with that? And what does Satan, or uh, Jesus realizes that Satan wants him to do that illegitimately. He wants him to take, take matters into his own hands and to fulfill that need outside the will of God. And this is so often how it works. These needs becomes, they become obsessions. They become dependencies. And to this, Paul says, don't let sin reign through your bodily needs. Here's the second. Sin loves to corrupt a good pleasure. Sin is a parasite. Sin has never made anything good ever. Satan can't create a good thing if he tried. But they love to corrupt the good things that God gives. And God has given us wonderful pleasures. Things that we enjoy. Things that we legitimately enjoy. And sin loves to sneak in under the pleasure and turn it and to corrupt it and to make it something that God never intended. Now, here's an easy example of this. Let's just talk about sexual desire, okay? Is sex a good gift from God? Amen. Barack Obama is not going to get a heartier amen than I just got from that man right there. Okay. Okay. Sexual desire is a good thing. God made a male and a female, a husband and a wife, to have that good experience together over the course of their life. And the church needs to say that very clearly. But think about all of the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness in this world that somehow relates to a corrupting of that good gift that God gave. Porn is sexual desire gone wrong. Sex outside of marriage is sexual desire gone wrong. Masturbation and other forms of self-sex are sexual desire gone wrong. Obviously, sexual violence in all of its forms is terribly, sex gone terribly wrong. And so you see how it, this, what could be a good thing and was made by God to be a good thing and is a pleasure that God graced humanity with is a good thing. Sin, the enemy, slides in under the cover of the pleasure that's a good thing and corrupts it and twists it and destroys us by it. Don't let sin reign in your bodily pleasures. 
Here's the third. Sin, knowing the way that we're made, knowing that we're human, sin loves to come and to tempt us either when we are at our best in our strength or when we are at our weakest. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Satan's been doing this a long time, okay? He and, and, and his hordes and, and all, you're not, the fir- you're not their first rodeo, okay? You might be the one billionth human being that it has tempted. He knows how we're made. He, he's watched us over all these years. He's the master uh, uh, anthropologist. He knows human beings. And he knows how to take, or how, when to come to us. And he loves to come to us when everything's great. And maybe that's you here today. You got up this morning, you got out of the shower, you looked in the mirror and you thought, I look good, right? (laughs) Your pecs have never been more defined, your biceps have never been bigger, your abs have never been more like cut. You look good. And maybe you just, you don't feel sick today, you feel like you're on top of your game today, like everything in you is just working the way that it's supposed to work. But enough about Dexter. Um, (laughs) If that's you and you're strong today and you think everything's great, I will remind you, King David, at the height of his power, things were so good. He was so good even as the number one warrior in all of Israel, when the, when the armies went to war, he said, you know what, you don't need me. You all just go out there. We're so strong. We're so awesome. I'm going to stay back here at the palace. And it was when David thought everything was great that he walked out onto that patio and he looked over and he saw Bathsheba naked, bathing, And he sent servants to go get her when everything was great. Remember Peter in the upper room? Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Peter looks around the room. He sees the other 11 fellows. And he says, you know what? I'm so much better than all these guys. I can guarantee you, Jesus, all these others might leave you. I will never leave you. Not me. I'm Peter, the rock. And if you know the story, within hours, he wilted like a desert flower. Not in front of Herod, but in front of a servant girl. Let he who stands take heed lest he fall. And sin and Satan love to come and to use that sense within us of peace and of of uh, uh, everything's, you know, of, of comfort and to say, now I'm going to take you down. So if you're here and everything's awesome, beware. Beware. But you know what? It also is the other extreme. Sin loves to catch us in our moments of deepest despair and despondency and pain. And in those moments when we are just at our very lowest spot, to come to us and to whisper in our ear, 
Look where following Jesus has taken you. I thought he was a good God. I thought that he loved you. And look at the way your life is. You sure you want to keep following this Jesus fellow? If this is the way it feels? Again, I remind you, Satan came to Jesus in his moment of weakness, both in the desert and in the Garden of Gethsemane. So if you're here today and you're not, everything's not awesome, everything's terrible, everything hurts, beware, because this is when also sin loves to come in and to tempt us away from our profession of faith. In fact, Peter describes the way that sin works in his letter, and he compares sin to what? Do you remember? Or Satan, not technically, but Satan is a what? He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And how do lions work? My girls love, I mean, almost every night uh, to put them to bed. Tell me a story. What do you want? Daniel in the lion's den. I have told that story, it seems like, hundreds of times. And they love it because I tell the story of how Daniel gets out and they throw the evil men in. And the lions, who didn't eat all night because they didn't eat Daniel, they come hungry to those evil men. And they, <laughs> they love that part because I, I pretend my hands are lions and their bodies are the evil men. <laughs> but how do lions work? They hide. They crouch, they prowl, right? And they wait for not mama water buffalo, but baby buffalo, or broken leg buffalo, or weak buffalo and sick buffalo. You watch the National Geographic, you see, you know, there they are, and you're just like, there's the cute little baby buffalo, and you're like, don't do it! <laughs> but you know where it's going, right? You know that little water buffalo is about to meet Jesus. <laughs> but that's how Satan works. When we are weak, he loves to come. And with all of the power and fury that he has as the prince of this world, to take us down. Do you see a threat? How do we act when there's a threat? When you're on the street or you're somewhere and all of a sudden you sense maybe there's a threat, that little inside goes, you know, you get all DEFCON 1 inside, right? And you're like, something's going on here. I'm, I'm going to flee or, fly, or fight. I'm convinced most Christians walk out the door in the morning not thinking a thing about war. And that's what I'm saying today. If you're a Christian... You are at war, and the enemy is inside of you. You take him or her with you everywhere you go. So don't think that just because Christ died for our sin, and Christ with him we died to our sin, that sin died to you. It did not die to you. It is alive and well, and is desperate to win, to be rethroned in our hearts to assume the place that Christ has taken and to be Lord and Master again. Don't let your body's desires be the space that the enemy ex 
exploits. Well, Paul, what are we to do? What are we to do? Tell us, how do we fight this? This is verse 13. Rather than giving your life, your, your bodies over to unrighteousness, notice what he says. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So where does Paul go? And I want you to see where Paul goes here. He goes right back to everything he's been saying for five chapters about justification and salvation. He goes back to our identity with Jesus. Realize who you are. You are in union with Christ. How can you be in union with the saving work of Christ and then present your body to Satan? No, don't do that. Present your body to God. And say, God, I want my body to be a tool for righteousness. I don't want my body to be a tool for unrighteousness. That's the way I used to live. That's, I know where that takes me. Now, from now on, I want my body, every part of me, right down to my toenails. I want everything. I present it to you. Now, if, you know, if you've been a Christian very long, you might, this might sound familiar. This verse here might sound familiar to another verse, a famous verse in Romans. Chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we see in chapter 6, present your body. In chapter 12, it adds, as a living sacrifice. And that's Old Testament language where the people would bring that sacrifice to the temple or tabernacle, and they would offer it to God, and the priest would take it and would kill that lamb and place it on the altar only now in the new covenant we're not doing that anymore and i'm thankful by the way guess who the sacrifices are in the new covenant we are we are living sacrifices and the imagery there is that we are every day rather than me presenting my body to satan and presenting all my my desires to sin Rather than that i am every day i am myself like this is the altar i'm crawling up on the altar and I am offering myself to God today once again. I want my body to be a tool of righteousness. I want my body not to be a place or a space where sin rules and reigns. I want my body to place where Jesus rules and reigns. On the throne of my heart and dominates my life. I want the directions of my life to be towards God. I present my body today for Him and His glory. Now, friends, notice here what Paul doesn't do. What Paul doesn't do here is he doesn't do what legalists do and what moralists do. A legalist or a moralist says, okay, you are going to, you're going to kill sin, and then eventually you'll be dead to it. And if you've been in church backgrounds where there's legalists and this kind of thing going on or moralists, everything is about you doing your very best. You've got to work harder. You've got to try harder. You're, you're, oh, you're falling in sin? Well, then you've got to work harder at it. And you try by your own bootstraps to somehow get over this habitual sin in your life. I'm going to do it. I'm going to grip my teeth. I'm going to work hard. Or you go to church and the preacher says, oh, you're involved in sin? Don't do it. Be warmed and filled. You're dismissed. And people leave church very morally energized, and they think, that's right, I'm going to go out now and I'm going to try to do it. 
I'm going to overcome this sin by just gritting my teeth. I'm going to try to be as moral as I possibly can. And what happens? It lasts till Tuesday. And then sometime on Tuesday, I'm right back where I was on Saturday. It's because people are trying to die to sin by killing sin. That is the opposite of what Paul says here. I appreciate John Piper pointing this out for me. It is the opposite of what Paul says here. He doesn't say, kill sin, kill sin, kill sin, kill sin, and then eventually you'll arrive at a place of perfection where you are now dead to sin. Rather, he says, you are dead to sin. Objective reality in Christ, you are dead to sin. And now, out of that dead-to-sin relationship that Jesus accomplished on the cross, I am going to live every day of my life killing sin. Killing sin. It's like my daughter. I just told Jennifer the story. I was walking to the church the other day. Here comes a little bug across the, uh, the sidewalk, right outside the church, a place of holiness and godliness. <laughs> my little three-year-old sees the bug, and she goes, wham, just like that. I've never been prouder of her in my whole life. What can we say about Madeline? She's dead to bugs. She is dead to bugs. Which means every day when she sees one, she steps on it. Are you dead to sin? And because you're dead to sin, every time it comes in your path, you kill it. That's what Paul's saying here. Religion and philosophies and, yes, much political theories espoused in all kinds of places, especially before elections, is going to try to convince people that in our own power, and in our own human effort, we can solve all of our problems by stepping on every bug we see. But the gospel of Jesus is not that man fixes his world by stepping on the bugs. We have to be dead to sin before we can set about killing it. And so the question today is if you are dominated by a sin or your life is in a direction that is in opposition to the will and the glory of God, I am not saying that somehow you need to try harder, work harder, and maybe you'll arrive at a place where you are spiritually acceptable to God. Rather, it is that when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. And because of his victory over sin... We now are dead to sin. It is no longer the master of my life. And every time a little Taliban ISIS bug sin thing, I'm mixing up my illustrations in the sermon, <laughs> comes across my path, I don't squish it so that maybe I can be righteous. I squish it because I am righteous in Christ. And that difference is the difference between just religion and religious people and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, how do I die to sin, Pastor Steve? 
I died of sin by union with Christ. How do I get in union with Christ? I get in union with Christ by faith and by repentance and by giving my life to King Jesus and for him to be throned and enthroned in my heart. And so let me ask today, is that true for you? Is Jesus the, the Lord of your life? Because if he is, you died to sin when he died on the cross. And now, by power of the Holy Spirit, I can actually change. I can be living my newness of life. How do I do that? Well, I got one final illustration today. Although my favorite one so far is my daughter squishing the bug. But this one is not a bad one as well. How do I, how do, I do this? Okay, I'll put the picture up if you would. How many of you know what that is? That's right. It's a beautiful blue sky. Now, if you're cheering right now, it tells me a lot about you, actually. Because as you know, probably, unless you're from out of town, this is the flag that Cubs fans fly when the Cubs win okay so when they win they fly the w when they don't win they i've never seen an l flag have you they never fly the l they only fly the w when the cubs win now if you didn't know better and you're from out of town or something and you you pull into a neighborhood and and you see all of these flags in the front yards of people, you might say, you know, am I in a different country? I'm not not familiar with that flag. What country is that? And so you get confused, and you say, I'm going to pull in, and I'm going to ask somebody. So you pull in the driveway, you go to the front door, ring the doorbell, person comes to the door, and and you say, hey, I'm, I'm from out of town. I'm a little confused. Why do you have a big blue W flag flying in front of your house. And they would say, well, it's because we won. You say, what do you mean? Well, today the Cubs won. The Cubs won the baseball game, and when they win, we fly the W. Now you look at the individual, and you think to yourself, you're looking at their physique, and you think, we won? I don't think you could throw a ball to home plate. I'm pretty sure you couldn't even run to first base without oxygen being brought out. And yet, you are saying, we won. What are Cubs fans doing when they're flying the flag? They are identifying with the win and the victory of somebody else. What did that person do to contribute to the victory? They ate unhealthy snacks on the couch watching the game. They contributed nothing to the victory, and yet in their mind, we won. 
How do we overcome sin? By identifying with the victory of another. What did I contribute to that victory? Nothing! Except the sin that required it. And yet, what do I do? I identify with the victory. As a Christian, I'm flying the flag of grace in my heart. And I am declaring a victory, and I am living out a victory, and I'm living in the identity of the victory of somebody else. Are you doing that today? We sing songs, read scriptures about Jesus and his beauty, his kingship, his lordship. But this really is where the rubber meets the road of life. Because it's one thing to, to sort of wave the flag, the W flag in our hearts in church. But we're almost done. And we're walking out these doors into a world filled with temptation. And with an enemy within us that wants desperately to destroy God's work in our lives. Are we prepared to leave this place killing sin so that sin doesn't kill us? And that's the point of Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. There's a, sin, there's a song that says this so well. Maybe you're familiar with it. Here's what it says. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee, swift and beautiful for thee. Take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne.